to be with you here this morning, this evening, and uh, to be joining in at looking God's, at God's Word. Let me pray as we come to God's Word this evening. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the great privilege that we have of meeting together this evening. We pray that as we do, you would help us uh, understand your Word and help us understand it in a way that might change our lives. Father, we thank you for your Word and we thank you that you would so care for us and so generously share with us uh, your thoughts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Tony mentioned earlier, we've been running through the series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we began in chapter 5. And if you remember in chapter 5, Jesus decided that he would teach his disciples. Um, He would teach his disciples in such a way that would tell them what he meant by the kingdom of heaven is here or near. He said in chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so over the last few weeks, we've been learning what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus. And as we come to this passage this evening, Jesus wants to say some particularly hard things about being his disciple. The words he will speak are words that sometimes are shocking. They're extremely challenging and they leave us wondering just how we can ever live this way. Come with me to this passage and we'll see three things. We'll see that to be a disciple of Jesus, we need to enter Jesus' gate. We need to bear Jesus' fruit and we need to practice Jesus' words. Well, let's look at to be a disciple of Jesus means to enter Jesus' gate. Verse 13 we read, Enter through the narrow, or if you like in old English, straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small, or straight again, is the gate and narrow or constricted is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. It's pretty easy to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying there's a narrow gate, a straight gate like the straits uh, between two lots of land or narrow and confined is is the picture. Gate as well as a broad gate. Uh, If you go to Jerusalem, you'll find the dung gate. Uh, That's the one there on the left. It's a broad gate. It's easy to fit through. Uh, But however, if you go in through the Jerusalem walls, you come to Hezekiah's tunnels. And it's a narrow gate into Hezekiah's tunnels. He built them in about 701 BC. Uh, The idea is it was the Assyrians were coming to Jerusalem. They wanted to protect themselves against the siege. And so they built these tunnels under Jerusalem. But if you walk down there, it's confined. You feel like if if, you're claustrophobic, it's terrible. Because you're confined and you feel like it's really narrow. And that's what Jesus is saying. My way is narrow and confined. But it leads to life. Now we're used to thinking in that way about many things actually. If you think about the narrow way, the disciplined way, and think about great musicians. What do great musicians do? Well, they devote themselves to learning their instrument day after day after day after day. They confine themselves. They narrow their field of vision. They're clearly focused on one particular thing. 
And as a result, there is amazing music. Think of a sportsman, a football player. Hours and hours and hours of training. Why? So that when they play, they can be great at what they do. So they can embrace life, if you like. Think of someone doing their PhD. Everyone I've talked to who's doing their PhD keeps saying, I have to keep refining what I'm doing. I have to keep leaving things out. I have to be disciplined. It's, It's actually quite narrow what I'm doing. But we've got a problem. Because Jesus is talking about our lives and a bit about following him. What he actually means is this. John 14, 6 puts it like this. As Jesus speaks with Thomas, who's inquiring about the way forward, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to God, comes to the Father, except through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Now that sounds exclusive to our ears, doesn't it? It sounds intolerant. It sounds like Jesus is demanding far too much to enter through this narrow gate. We can see it maybe in other areas, but in this area, that sounds too narrow, too confined. And the reason it sounds too confined is because we've had such good evangelists for other truth statements. People who've convinced us that there's another way of looking at this world. And they've been brilliant evangelists for what they've been saying. And so when we come to a statement like this, we feel really uncomfortable because we know there's some other statements that could be made. Professor John Hicks wrote a book and his book was called The Rainbow of Faiths. His basic premise was that the great religions of the world contain merely... um, Perceptions of the same reality. Now, you've heard this in many different forms and in many different ways. He actually used this illustration. Uh, can you see a duck or can you see a rabbit? Um, there's a duck and a rabbit there. And he said, well, actually, the way the world works is this. The great religions are just ways of looking at exactly the same picture. Uh, there are duck people who can see the duck immediately. And there are rabbit people who can see the rabbit immediately. Uh, Muslims might be the duck people and Christians may be the rabbit people. Uh, And so really all religions are just coming at things in different ways to see the same kind of perspective, same sort of reality from different perspectives. Now, of course, there's a problem with that, isn't there? Because the only person who can observe the truth of what's going on is the person who knows there's a duck and a rabbit. And in fact, the illusion has been drawn that way. So the only people who can really see the truth are the people who can see both sets of reality and kind of it works for them. But those other people who can only see the duck and who can only see the rabbit are just being foolish. 
Now, if you've spent any time in a country that hasn't been shaped by Western thought, you will know that this sounds extremely arrogant. To the person who worships their ancestors, the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life just is impossible to comprehend. We cannot dishonour our ancestors. We cannot disrespect them. If we disrespect them, our lives might fall apart. We'll bring bad luck on ourselves. We're not the same as you. We're not going to disrespect our ancestors in favour of following Jesus, the way, the truth and the life. Or if you speak to a Muslim person and you speak to them generously and kindly and you understand what they believe, they say, we don't believe in the same God. You talk about a God three in one. We actually think that's blasphemy. We disagree completely. In fact, it's extremely disrespectful to suggest that all great religions contain merely the same perceptions of the same reality. It's a failure to actually listen carefully to the differences. It's a failure to recognise that there are genuine differences in terms of belief between people. And no wonder people see it as offensive, as see it as Western imperialism trying to take over the world. Jesus leaves us with a challenge, doesn't he? We live in a world where this is very current thinking. The idea that all religions are the same and you know, we should just all get on and paper over the differences. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. The gate is narrow. There's not many people who are going to go through it. It's confined. Now that means we're left with a decision. Do we trust Jesus or not? Do we trust him with our lives? Do we trust that what he says is true? Or do we believe other truth claims that all religions are the same? Or perhaps another one that says no religions are worth following. There's many claims out there. Jesus is saying to us, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to make a decision to enter Jesus' gate to enter the narrow gate, to walk through that gate. And I want to ask you this evening, where do you stand? Are you prepared to walk through that narrow gate, to say Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and there's no way else to the Father, no way else to the Father? Well, Jesus then points out some other things about what is taking place in this world and about being his disciple. And he says, to be a disciple of mine, you need to bear my fruit. Now, he uses a whole lot of pictures about gardens and about orchards and things like that. To be honest with you, I'm not much good at farming or orchards or gardens. Um, in my household, I get to dig the holes. Uh, I, I'm not good at anything else. 
But I think I can get what Jesus is getting at still, uh, even though I don't have very much of a knowledge of this area. And he talks about four different things. And we'll start off by looking at uh, three of them. If you come with me to Matthew chapter 7, after he's told us that you can only enter through the narrow gate, he continues in verse 15 with these words. Watch out for false prophets. Oh, by the way, I want you to look for a pattern here. As we read through these words, try and see a pattern that Jesus is developing as we go along. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So you've got this crazy picture of a wolf wearing a sheep's fleece. Can you see it? A wolf wearing a sheep's fleece and coming along and pretending to be a sheep amongst the flock. And Jesus is saying, watch out for them. They're ferocious. By your fruit, you will recognise them. Okay, that mixed metaphors. I wonder what's going on here. Then he says, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? So we're on to the second one. Sheeps and wolves, grapes and thorn bushes. Or figs from thistles. Um, do thorn bushes and do thistles produce really nice fruit? Is the question. Well, the answer is obviously no. They don't produce nice fruit. Uh, There's something wrong with that picture. They can't produce nice fruit. Then Jesus seems to come at it a slightly different way. He looks at it from another angle and he says, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Well, it seems pretty obvious. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by your fruit, you will recognise them. Now, can you see something, the, the, the kind of pattern that's happening here? In the beginning, Jesus is talking about things that are internal and things that are external. He's saying there are some people who are like wolves internally and they might present as sheep. On the other hand, you might think that a thorn bush can produce grapes, but it can't. So internal versus external again. And then he ends up by saying, well, actually, the reality is, if internally it's not right, if the tree is bad, it will only produce bad fruit in the end. If the tree is good, it will only produce good fruit. Now we see Jesus actually toying with these ideas and thinking about this all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, for example, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Now that's the external uh, you're not committing adultery. You can't be obviously seen to be committing adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see the internal, external again? Internally there's something wrong, even though externally you might be presenting okay. Or alternatively, in Matthew chapter 6, talking about praying and people standing out and praying in front of other people. When you pray, don't be like a hypocrite. 
They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Jesus is pointing out the inconsistency again. He's saying there's something wrong internally here and they're being hypocrites. Actually, the inside's not right. They're presenting as one thing, but they're actually inside quite different. Or take, for example, the passage we looked at last week with Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, all the way through, Jesus has been challenging us to think carefully about our hearts. We might be able to put on a good show, but he wants to know what's going on in our hearts. He wants to see what's actually happening inside. And he says, in the end, if what's going on inside is producing good fruit, it will produce good fruit externally. If you're a good tree, you'll produce good fruit. Now, just exactly what Jesus means becomes very clear as we look at the next part of the passage. He talks about some people who are known and some people who are not known by him. Now look at these words here in verse 21. They're quite shocking actually. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Now the emphasis there is Lord, Lord, like it's a passionate Lord, Lord. It's not meant to be just, oh well I recognise God exists and he's a nice guy. This is Lord, Lord. You look at this person and you go, wow, that person's really committed. Not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of, of my Father who is in heaven. Well, you go, actually, well, that, that, that seems, I, yeah, okay. What does Jesus mean? Well, actually, look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's a very powerful word. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus sounds angry and fed up with these people. Now let's just leave aside the idea about driving out demons and performing many miracles for the moment. You can talk about that in your Bible study groups. But what's actually going on? Why is Jesus so upset with these people? What is going on internally that makes him so upset? Well, you see, he says, many will say to me on that day. So he's thinking about a time of judgment when people's lives will be being looked over. Look what these people are saying. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons. They're saying, look at what we've done. You owe me, God. You owe me. Look at the things I've done for you. What Jesus is so angry about is these people are trying to be their own saviours. They're not letting him be their saviour. They might look good on the outside. They might pray really well. They might come to church every Sunday. 
They might even be kind and generous to lots of people. But they're trying to save themselves. They're trying to earn brownie points. They're trying to say to God, Look, Lord, Lord, look what I've done. Surely you can treat me well. And Jesus is saying, Actually, I don't know you. You've been doing it all for yourself. You haven't looked at me. You're actually interested in yourself. The reason you're behaving in that way has actually nothing to do with who I am. You think you can save yourself by doing all these things. And that's just not going to work. Bad tree, bad fruit. Cast away. Told you there'd be hard words. They are, aren't they? It makes us examine our own hearts and ask us about our own motivations and what's actually going on in our own lives. It says we need to be known by Jesus. You see, we read uh, in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has done it all for us. Jesus has come into this world, died in our place, called us to himself. There is nothing we can do to earn favour with him. He does it for us. He is our saviour. We cannot rescue ourselves. And all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been confronting us with that fact by pointing out just how deep our sinfulness is, how far away we are from God's standards. And he's been saying, look how far away you are. You need my help. No matter how many good things you do, you're not going to earn favour with me. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, you might say, okay, well, I guess if that's the case, I don't have to do anything. Jesus has done it all. But you notice that Jesus actually calls us to do things. Only he who does the will of my Father in heaven will be recognised. What Jesus is really saying is what is said in Romans chapter uh, chapter 1 verse 5 when he says this, when Paul says this to us. We have received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. Obedience that comes from faith. Not earns faith not earns trust, not earns our position with God, but comes out of knowing we have been rescued, out of knowing we have been called to God, out of knowing that Jesus has done it all. And so Jesus moves on and explains that further in the next picture that he paints. He says, Enter my gate, bear my fruit, but make sure you practice my words. 
you've entered through the gate, practice my words. And you see that here in verse 24, where we read this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, we're meant to be doing something, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus goes on to describe a foolish man as someone who builds their house upon the sand. Clearly what Jesus is saying is build your life on me. Walk through the narrow gate. I'm the way, the truth and the life. Bear good fruit. Build your life on me. Build your life on good foundations. Seek first, as we've already heard last two weeks ago, Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus is saying, don't waste your life. Don't end up building your life on the sand. Don't waste it. Build it on me. I am the way, the truth and the life. Now, two weeks ago, I told you about a man who'd made a decision to do that. And it's so easy, I'll come back to that point in a minute actually, I'll come to this point first. In our heads I think we often carry around with us different lists. Different lists of things that we think we should get through in life. We have a kind of CV list, maybe things we wished we'd accomplished and uh, studies with which we'd done and we can point to our CV and, and uh, think about that. We have our shopping list of things that we might like to own. Uh, Maybe it's a house, maybe it's a car, maybe uh, it's uh, a boat. Uh, Maybe we'd like to go sailing with Matt. Um, All that kind of thing. We we have kind of a list of shopping things we'd like to buy. And we also have a list of, of experiences that we might like to have as well. A bucket list of things that we might like to have done. We might like to have got married and had a family. Or we might like to have um, somehow gone and explored Kathmandu. You know, there's a, there's a list of things in our head. And we often make our decisions in our lives about what we're doing based on these lists. Well, those lists are fine, but what Jesus is saying here is don't build your life on them. It's sand. Build your life on me. Build your life on me. Now, two weeks ago, I told you about a man who made this decision very early on in his life. He's a man who's uh, now a significant partner in a law firm. And when, about 25, 26 years ago, he was uh, going to church in England and was meeting with John Stott, who's a uh, significant theologian, he went to John and said, what should I do with my life? Should I become a minister or should I become a lawyer? And John Stott said to him, we need Christian lawyers. We need Christian lawyers. Please become a Christian lawyer. So this man decided to become a Christian lawyer. As I said, he's now a significant partner in a law firm. Just last week, his law firm surprised him. It's been 25 years since he's been with his law firm. And they decided to throw him a party. It was a surprise party. He had no idea it was going to take place. So all his friends and colleagues came around and they threw this great party for him. He had five minutes to talk about, five minutes to respond to the speeches that were given, five minutes to think about what to say. 
What did he get up and talk about? Did he talk about his CV? Did he talk about the many, many experiences he's had in life? Did he talk about the shopping list of things that he owned? No. In front of his colleagues, these cynical lawyers, he said, I've founded my life on Jesus. That's why I'm here. Because Jesus has called me to be a Christian lawyer. And that's what I've set my course for. Now what's so significant to me is the reason I knew that this was happening is because his daughter had posted this on Facebook. And his daughter said, I'm so proud of you, Dad. So proud of what you've done. Which told me not only that he was in the workplace, someone who'd founded himself on Jesus, but in his family life as well. His daughter had seen his example. It means in the privacy of their own home, he had founded his life on Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't waste your life. Found it on me. Yes. Enter through my gate. Yes. Bear my fruit. Yes. Practice my words. Found your life on me. I want to invite you to do that this evening. Maybe for the first time, maybe afresh again. To say, yes, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. And some of you may want to take some more time and explore things further. I invite you to do that as well. But this is a moment of decision. This is an opportunity tonight to think about these things. To say, actually, I choose to be a disciple of Jesus. Or I choose again to be a disciple of Jesus. There's been a prayer that we've used throughout the series that kind of sums up lots of what Jesus has been saying and our dependence on him. And as a way of concluding this evening and concluding this series, what I'd like us to do is to pray this prayer together. I'm just going to give you a moment to reflect. I'm going to put the prayer up on the screen. A moment to reflect. And then in response to God's word, what I'd like us to do is say this prayer together. Say the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.